morning we start a new series through, in 10 weeks we're going to cover the whole plot line of scripture. And we're going to cover it as the story. My goal here is by the end of these next 10 weeks, if somebody asked you, tell me the story of the Bible, God's story, you'll be able to do it like that. In fact, I would contend that you'll have the, the heart of it even today. That you could understand the whole story of the Bible. Do you know any good stories? Do you know any good stories? What are some of your favorite stories, favorite movies? What are the things when you're flipping through channels, you're watching TV, that if that pops up, that's where I stop? Like, I, I got to watch this. For, I got a few. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, it's one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite movies, and, and just it's compelling when you watch it. And if it comes on and I'm flipping through channels, I almost always want to stop and watch the rest of it, no matter where it's at. Another one, on a lighter note, is The Sandlot. A little story about little kids playing baseball, and this, it, it's just nostalgic for me, playing baseball from when I was a little kid, and it's a lot of fun. Another story that, that I, I enjoy, I wouldn't call it one of my favorite. well, I mean, I put it up there, but I wouldn't call it my favorite, is, have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? You ever seen that movie? Some of you are like, yeah, I love it. Awesome. It, some of you are like, oh, really? I, I can't stand that thing. Well, how many of you have seen it? Have you seen it? Okay, who's never seen it? Who never cares if they see it? All right. So here's the deal. I'm going to show you something that I had shown uh, last spring and I showed to our students this last Sunday. But for those of you who've seen it, you're going to see a little blip here, and it's going to make sense to you. But those who haven't, you're going to watch this, and you're going to learn some... Basically, it's just a bunch of facts from the movie. So Bryce is going to start that now, but I want to gauge your reaction to this after just seeing a list of facts about that story. Some of you have seen that movie, and you've seen it, and so when these facts start popping up on the screen, you have some reactions. You, it's a reminder to you of the story, right? You had certain flashbacks there of like, oh, I remember that, I remember that, that was so cool, yes, love it. You were like, the facts had context. You understood what the story was, and you were able to connect the dots. Like, like you understood, like, the whole, you, you just kind of followed the whole plot line of the story through that little video. But now the other half of you, you've never seen it. And you told me you don't care if you ever see it. So you saw these facts and you, you're like, who's Frodo? Who names their kid Frodo? Really? And, and Sauron, what, what is Sauron or who is Sauron? Why is it bad? You don't have a clue. 
And, and the reason is it's confusing and it has no context. Well, here's what we're going to be doing over the next 10 weeks is we're going to take the story of the Bible and from 30,000, 50,000 feet, we're going to look at the overarching story of God's word. And the problem is, is that oftentimes we approach God's word or people we come in contact with. We talked the last month about being sent as missionaries, right? And we go and we share the gospel with them. But the reality is so many people in our culture today have no context for the story of scripture. And so they hear different sound bites, but they don't have any idea where it fits into the whole story. And so the reality is that today, because of that fact, for many people, the story of scripture And the facts of Scripture have no context, and it's confusing, and it's just one of many stories out there for them to understand and know. And they don't care too much, to be quite frank. I would contend to you that it's important for us to know the whole story, to put the facts in context, to help other people know the story and invite them to be a part of it. And that's where we're headed for the next 10 weeks. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Thanks that... um, You invite us into your story, that you've you've written us in, whether we realize it or recognize it or not. The fact that we're standing here, sitting here today, is because you've decreed it, and you've ordained it, and you've written it. You knew our days long before we were born, and you know our days long into the future. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you also show me your grace through Jesus, and um, that you forgive me of my sin. I pray that you'd speak through me and, and teach through me and, and to me today. And I pray against the enemy who, who loves nothing more than to confuse our story and to get us to buy into things that aren't true and to believe things about ourselves and about the world and, and Jesus ultimately about you that are just plain false because he loves to undo what you've begun. Instead, Holy Spirit, teach us, encourage us, rebuke us, help us know your story and be encouraged by the fact that you've written us in. I pray all this through Jesus, my Savior. Amen. Well, most people, most Christians, I should say, we look at the Bible and we view it one of two ways. You either view it as a reference book. That's option one. I view it as a reference book. It's just, it's up on the shelf. And when I need it, I pull it down and I open up and I find what I need to know. Uh, I, I reference it for finding out how to live my life, how to deal with this situation, that situation, uh, this person, that person. And, and it's a reference book for me that I go to just like uh, an encyclopedia when I need to know something. Now, can the Bible be helpful in that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not saying that that's, that's a wrong thing. Uh, if, if anything, it encourages you to go, to the, go to Scripture when you need reference, when you need something, and you need to understand how to live and, and how to function. But the problem is, is when we treat the Bible only that way, as a reference book, it really becomes me-centered, doesn't it? And the story becomes about me. And, and what does this have to say to me, about me, for me? Me. You know, it's very self-centered. Now, the other option to treat Scripture and to understand Scripture is not merely as a reference book, but as one big story. One big story. God's Word, do you understand this, is one big story from beginning to end. It tells the story of of God's redemption and, and of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ. And it's one big story, and it, and it has a plot, and it has uh, information for how we ought to, to live our lives and, and how we are to function. 
you got to understand God's word is one big story. And, And like any good story, it has a plot. Now think about your favorite story from earlier as I brought that up. Your favorite story has a plot, plot line that's probably similar to something like this. First, the plot begins with an exposition, an introduction, maybe. And during this introduction, the setting of the story is there. And you learn who all the key characters are. You learn who all the the main players in the story are. You learn who the protagonist is, who the antagonist is. You learn some of the supporting characters in that story. Think of your favorite story. The, the, The beginning of the story, the exposition answers the question about your story. How did this all begin? How did it begin? Think about it. I bet your story starts with something like that. And it explains to some extent, sometimes vaguely, sometimes in detail... How did this story begin? That's what it answers. It answers that question. Well, after the exposition, any good story, it has a, has a second piece to it where there's this rising action. And by the time you get to this part of the plot, you get to this part of the story, the main characters are introduced, right? You know who the good guy is. You may or may not know who the bad guy is, or maybe you know one or the other, but you know some of the main characters, and, and you know the setting. You know how it began, and now the main character is introduced, more will be introduced on the way, but the story is moving forward. And as it's moving forward, it's going to go toward uh, the climax of the story and everything, every character, every detail is pushing the story forward. You got, you got some, some extra characters and some different things and rising action. The story goes and it goes until it hits this third part of the story. It hits the climax of the story. And the climax of the story is where... It, you find out if there's any hope for the future because during that rising action, at some point during this, some kind of conflict or some kind of uh, distress or whatever is introduced and you find out something isn't right. Something's not quite right. You watch Frozen with your kids? You find out something's not quite right because every time she touches something, it freezes. And there's something not right. What is it? And you move forward, you move forward, you move forward until finally you hit this point of the climax of the story where the problem gets dealt with. Now, sometimes it's solved and resolved and life is good. Sometimes it's a tragedy and it's horrible and it's a sad story. But every story works its way toward that climax, doesn't it? I mean, like one of the ones I told about, the Shawshank Redemption, the climax is when he's, he's crawling through the pipes to get out and bust free and gain his freedom. You're wondering, is he going to get caught? Is he going to make it? What's going to happen? And that's the climax of the story. Well, then after the story, after you hit the climax, the rest of the story, generally speaking, is usually about resolution to the story. And it tells you what the future holds. Sometimes it tells you a lot of detail. Sometimes it's just they lived happily ever after, if it's a Disney movie. Right? And, and you get this whole story from exposition to the rising action to the climax to the, to the res- resolution at the end. Why does every story tell the same story? You ever thought about that? Well, hold that thought because let me share God's story with you. God's story starts like this. It starts with an exposition where God says in his word, in the beginning, what, what's the next word? God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It answers that question. How did it all begin? And you find out right in the beginning, 
In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And in the beginning, he created things, and it was good. There was harmony. It, it, was, it was a great, good creation. And the main characters are introduced. You meet Adam, and you meet Eve. You meet the protagonist and God himself walking in the garden. And everything is fantastic. But you also, in chapter 3, meet the antagonist. And the antagonist is, is Satan, who is goal in all that he does is to undo and unravel what God has put together and what God has started and reverse it. And what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis is you start the rising action. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a conflict that happens where, see, in the beginning, God said, you can, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Any tree is yours except one. Now, if you look in Scripture and read how big this garden was, like the the space between these rivers, it's not like your garden in your backyard, I've told you, right? It's like Yellowstone. It's like this huge national park garden, and it's gorgeous, and it's beautiful. And you can eat from any tree in the garden, just not the one in the middle, God says. Because if you eat from that one, you'll surely die. And God does this to test them, to find out would they be loyal to him, that they really love him. Because if not, what is love if we don't have some kind of will to love God of our own volition, right? And so God gives them that opportunity, and what do they do? Well, they go, and Eve is tempted by the serpent. We find out later is Satan, God's enemy. And and he tempts her, and he says, did God really say if you eat of that, that that you'll, he he surely didn't say that you'd die. And she's like, no, he did. And he says, you know why he doesn't want you to eat it? Because if you eat of it, you'll become like him. Well, of course, we find out she was already made in God's image, so she was already like him. But she buys into the lie, and she eats of the fruit, and she disobeys God. The one tree she couldn't eat from. And and all the guys go, oh, man, really, Eve, why'd you have to screw that up? Except, you know what? Guess where Adam was? He was standing right next to her being a coward. And he didn't step in and stop her from eating it. He bought into the lie, too. Because she turns and hands it to him, and he eats it. And they both sin. And now you, you, you read in chapter 3 what happens is they sin. And God, though, it's amazing. You know, God initiates going after him because what's the first thing God says after they do that? He says, where are you? Where are you? God comes looking for them. What a good God. And then he promises in, in chapter 3, verse 15, that he's going to send someone to fix all of this that they screwed up. It's the first announcement of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. And the rest of the story then, between Adam and Eve and every other character after that, is moving the story forward. How is God going to do this? Well, we meet Abraham. God's going to do it through Abraham and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons and the whole nation of Israel and Egypt. And he's going to rescue him from Egypt and bring him into the promised land. He's going to bring him into the promised land and and while they're there, he's going he's gonna to offer them blessing if they obey, but they don't obey because they're like us, and they disobey. And so God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send discipline, and they get sent into exile, and they get brought back, and God's still gracious. He's still working. The, 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 the climate is still coming, and then finally you get to the New Testament, and here's Jesus. And that's the climax of the story. See, it started with creation, and then you had the fall. They fell into sin. They fell away from this perfection. And the the rest of the story is all working toward the climax, which is when Jesus comes to rescue us. And he rescues us because our sin deserves punishment. It demands payment in blood. 
because we violated what God ordained. And Jesus does that for us, and he saves us to anyone who would believe. Nothing I do, just if I believe. You're like, that's too simple. I know, but that's what he offers. He's a good God. And then the rest of it is the resolution. You read through the rest of the New Testament, and you find out that in the future, Jesus is coming again, and he's going to restore everything. There's going to be this restoration back to the way everything was, and it's going to be perfect, and there will be a happily ever after for those who've trusted Jesus. Isn't that good news? That's great news. And that's the story of the Bible. If somebody asks you, what's the story of the Bible? Well, creation, fall, rescue, restoration. That's the whole story. And everything in Scripture is pointing towards that. And you know what? That restoration piece is still in the future. So that means the story's not done. And guess who's part of it? I am, and you are. You're participants in this great story. You're one of the supporting characters in God's story, moving the story forward toward that restoration. That's an amazing thing. It gives your life purpose and meaning and value. You are part of the story. Now back to my question earlier. Why is it that every other story follows that same plot line? It has an exposition and a a conflict with rising action and a climax and then a resolution, just like God's story. Do you know why? Here's why I think it is. I think it's because every good story ultimately is an echo of God's story. It's an echo. Do you know what an echo is? Echo! I woke some of you up, didn't I? Sorry. Welcome. We're about halfway done. An echo, when you hear it, it bounces off the wall and you hear it, right? You hear it come back, but you don't hear it quite perfectly, do you? You hear it bounce. Sometimes you hear it really well. Sometimes you don't. But it it bounces around and you hear pieces of that original thing you said or that original story. And every good story is just an echo. It's just kind of imperfectly bouncing off this plot line of God's story because he's written it into our hearts. He's written it into our hearts. Think about Cinderella for an example, right? Cinderella, you have a beginning. What was the beginning? Well, there was Cinderella and she had a wicked stepmother and a bunch of wicked stepsisters. How did it all begin? There you go. And then, then you have some kind of problem. Well, well, she's, she's just treated horribly by her stepmother and by her, her stepsisters and it's just awful. And, and she's never going to get married. She's never going to meet anybody who's really going to love her. And she has to dress in rags when everybody else is all dressed pretty and beautiful. And, oh, it's so I feel so bad for Cinderella. Right? And the story moves on and all these characters and you find out she gets invited to the ball. And the the story goes and things are looking good for Cinderella. She gets the magic slipper and everything's perfect, right? It's going to be happily ever after. But then something happens. There's a climax to the story where it all goes wrong. Where it all goes wrong. It hits midnight and she runs away. But thankfully she left her slipper with the right guy. Because he comes back and finds her, puts it on all of her her big-footed stepsisters, and it doesn't fit him, but it fits perfectly on her perfect little foot, right? And then what? Oh, there it is. Restoration to the way it was happily ever after. We could go through about any story, and you could follow that plot line because it echoes God's story. It echoes God's story. And what we're going to do is we're going to take time to, we're going to take three weeks and look at this creation part of the story. We're going to take a few weeks, and we're going to look at the fall part of the story, what went wrong. We're going to take a few weeks and we're going to look at uh, the rescue. How is God dealing with this? 
And then the final part of the story, the restoration. What's the future hold? What's the future hold? So this morning, we're at the very beginning. And as we read earlier, in the beginning, how does it start? In the beginning, God. Loved ones, God is the beginning and the heart of the story. In the beginning, God. He's the main character of the story. I I just want to go through and remind you of some things that that many of you already know, but, but remind you of who our God is. Because if you don't get that, then you don't understand how the story began. And you get confused by all these other things you hear. And we lose sight of who the story's about. See, this whole story that you're a part of and that I'm a part of, the main character isn't you. And it's not me. It's God. God is the main character of the story. It's his story. Isaiah 45 verse 5 says this. God says, I am the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. You're like, well, Josh, what about other religions and other things? And you hear about Allah and you hear about, you know, hear about all these different religions. What, what about them? Isn't that a valid way? I mean, it, we just all believe in the same God with different names, don't we? That's not what God says. God says, I am the Lord. There is no one besides me. There, is, there are no other gods. I, I would contend, just as a, an aside, I, I think all those other gods that you hear people worship, ultimately, this is my opinion, but I believe there's probably demons who are named those names and people are worshiping false gods. God says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. There is no other. Well, if he's God, I mean, think about it. Put your thinking cap on for a second. If if God is really God, who's in charge? God. If God's really God, can I get my mind around him? No. If I could, would he really be a God? No. He'd just be something I brought up and imagined and put on paper. Who who would want to worship a God that you totally understood? Because how powerful would he be? Only as powerful as your mind and your imagination. But that's not God. I'm the Lord. He says, I created all things. He's in charge and in control of all things. That means I don't have to be. That means I don't have to live my life trying to make the story about me. There's already a star. And I get a supporting role. I get an important role. Your story matters. But you've got to understand your story is part of the big story. It's moving the story forward to when Jesus comes again. God's the main character. Something else to know about God is God is eternal. He's eternal. Genesis 1.1, we already said it. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. Now, you ever hear people talk about creation and they talk about, I think it's in your 110 questions this week, about the Big Bang Theory. And in the beginning, there was this big... And everything spiraled around in millions and gazillions of years. And this primordial goop. And then here we are. Isn't it amazing? Okay, great, but where'd the goop come from to begin with? I don't know, it just boom. Okay, yeah, but what caused the boom? I don't know, it just boom. Yeah, but, but where'd, it, where'd it start? I don't know. Quit getting religious on me. <laughs> Listen, in the beginning, God. And I know that's hard to get your mind around because we're created 
we have a beginning. God has no beginning. He's eternal. He sees time and he comes into time. He's not bound by it. He has no beginning. He has the power to speak and it's there. He spoke and it came into existence. God's eternal. He's the main character. He's eternal. He's the creator of everything. He's the creator of everything, number three. God's the one, as I just said, who, who, he just spoke and it came into existence. He, he created the story to tell. Think of, Now, one of the attributes we know of God is that God, we'll get to this, that God is loving, right? And if God is perfectly loving, love is is often about, it's an action where I share and show concern for other people. Now, God is Trinity. We'll get to that too. I'm getting ahead of myself. But the most loving thing he could do really is to create us to share his love with. And he created all things to point to him because he's of most value. God's the creator of everything. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Think about the things you create. You get tired and take a nap, don't you? Well, we know God rested on the seventh day, but it wasn't because he was tired. It was to sit back and go, I did a good job. Look at that. It's very good. That's why God rested. He doesn't grow weary. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This morning I had the opportunity to, again, to preach uh, this morning at Bowdoin Church and out on the lake and the sunrise and it's gorgeous. And to stand there and proclaim to all these people in their boats, hey, look, Jesus made that. He made it. He created it. It's the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, he's the creator and he's powerful. So sometimes we think, boy, I don't know if I can approach that God. Except you can because number four, God's relational. He's relational. First number, letter A there, he's triune, meaning he's trinity. He's, he's one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's trinity. And he's in loving relationship with himself. We don't have time to unpack that and I mean, we'd need a few years to even come close to unpacking all of that because there's so much truth there. But, but you need to understand that God, by his very essence and very nature, is relational. And we're created in his image, so we're relational. And we love to be in relationship and need to be in relationship with others. Genesis 1:26. then God said, you ever wonder why it said this, let us make man in our image? Does God just talk like, mm, very much like this with an accent? Let us make in our image. I mean, is that how he talks? No, he says it because he's Trinity. It's three persons, one God. Three persons, one God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. When Jesus tells us to make disciples, he tells us to go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. God's in relationship with himself. He's relational. Not only this, but he's a talking God. God speaks. He speaks right away in Genesis chapter 1 to his creation. 
One, he, he talks to create, and then he talks to his creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. But then in chapter 3, we see him actually talking to his creation, talking to us. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, after he had sinned, where are you? Where are you? Why? Because he's relational and he wants that relationship with us. He's full of love, compassion, mercy, and goodness. If you're not relational, how do you show love? How do you show love if you're not relational or compassion or mercy? A handful of verses here. First John four sixteen. So we we've come to know and believe that the love that the believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Give thanks to the God of heaven, Psalm one thirty six, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm one forty five. The Lord is gracious and merciful; he's slow to anger; he's abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 25, remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love, for they've been from of old. First Chronicles 16, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You read through the Psalms, you'll hear that line over and over and over and over and over and over. As a song that his people sang, the same verse, over and over and over and over, your steadfast love endures forever. Repeating it. Why? Because we forget it and we need to know it. He's relational. He's the main character. He's eternal. He's the creator. He's relational. And number five, God is the king and sovereign ruler of all. He's the king. And he's a good king. See, so many kingdoms on this earth, they, they start out maybe good or maybe they're just wicked. But even the best of kings, look at David in the Old Testament. Started out great, but then we find out he's a man too and he failed. And there is no king who's perfect except the king, Jesus himself. And when he comes and restores all things and he reigns as king, guess what? It's going to be this benevolent monarchy where where everything is good and we love the king because he's always looking out for us in the best possible way. His thoughts are toward his people. And he rules everything. Psalm 95, for the Lord, do you agree with this? The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. And the sea, it's his. He made it. And his hands, they formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. You know what comes right after that, after a reminder of God is our good king? So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He's a good king. Trust him. Number six, not only is the, the king and sovereign ruler of all, God is the holy and righteous judge of every created thing. God is the holy and righteous judge. Let's unpack those a little bit. What does it mean that he's holy? Well, to be holy means that he's separate or he's different. He's other. He's not like us. We're like him. We reflect him in some ways. 
But he's not like us. He can see things with an eternal perspective. He, he, he can step out of time. He knows all things. He has all power. He's perfectly good. He, he doesn't sin. He, he doesn't screw up. <laughs> Aren't you thankful that God doesn't mess things up? He's holy. Not just holy, but holy, 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 Isaiah tells us. Not just holy, not just holy, holy. Totally, completely holy and different than us. And if he wasn't, why would we worship him? If he wasn't, why would we love him? Well, he's the holy and righteous judge. Guess what? Since he's separate, he sees things perfectly. He discerns the motives of my heart. Whereas sometimes I don't discern the motives of my heart. And I think I'm doing this for all the right reasons. And God can look at my heart and recognize, Josh, there's, there's some work to be done right there. And he's right. And thankfully, I don't need to worry then about what other people say about me, good or bad. In fact, it's a snare and a trap, the writer of Proverbs says to worry too much about what man says or to be afraid of other people. God's the judge. Paul tells, as he writes one of his letters, he says, you know what? It's a very small thing, what you think of me. Because I have a judge, I have a ruler who's over me. Remember that the next time you get caught up in thinking, especially students, this is a big one, at your age, I remember it. And it's, it's honestly, it's for adults too. We just hide it better. But worrying about what people think. When in reality, God is the holy judge. He knows you, loves you. And he knows all things and he cares about you. And so maybe for all of us, we'd think the next time we worry about what somebody else thinks about us, we just start singing. It's a small thing after all. It's a small thing after all. What you think of me is a small thing. After all, it's a small, small thing. Why? Because my God, the good and perfect king, good and perfect father, he's the holy and righteous judge of me. He's the audience I lived my life before. It's his story that I'm a part of. And he's the main character. And I'm just here to move the story forward. Far be it from me, the writer of Genesis says, chapter 18, verse 25, far be it from, sorry, sorry, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous faith, righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In other words, God himself. And as I said already in Isaiah chapter six, verse three, one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now we read these things in scripture and we read this story about who God is. And we wonder, is he still like that? Because I look around and I see everything messed up because of sin. I see everything kind of tainted. And is he still good? The answer is yes. Because number seven, God's unchanging. 
He's unchanging. In Malachi, he says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. Hebrews tells us about Jesus, who's God. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the same at the beginning of the story as he was in the middle, as he will be as it moves forward. He's the same, so we can trust him. He's he's unlike others in our life who come and go and, and even like ourselves, to be quite honest, where some days we're good and other days we kind of betray people and we can be jerks and we have our bad days. He doesn't have his bad days. He's always the same. He's unchanging. So you can trust him. As I said, over the next few weeks, we're going to be walking through this story. And curiously, if you, have, if you have kids or you have students, every age level in our church is going through this story together. So your kids are learning this same thing right now back in Children's Church or in Wabasee Kids. And you're going to be able to have an opportunity to talk about it with them when you get home over dinner this afternoon or, or lunch this afternoon or dinner this evening. Or maybe driving to school this week. And, hey, do you know any good stories? Who's at the beginning of the story? God is. And he's a good God. He's the main character. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. He's eternal. He's the creator. He's relational. He loves us. Wants to be our friend. He's, uh, he's the holy and righteous judge. He's, he's unchanging. You don't need to worry about him ever changing or betraying you. And he offers this opportunity for us to recognize that we're part of his story and to make his story our story. The the constant theme throughout all this for you to understand is, yes, God's holy, he's perfect, but because we sin, if we fast forward a little bit, we sin, we mess it up, and we deserve his wrath, we deserve death. But thankfully, he sent his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for me, the death I deserve. And Jesus says, if I would simply repent and turn and believe in him, nothing that I do to make myself right with God, but if I would just turn to him, that he'd write me into his story as one of his children, not just part of his creation. And I could be saved and redeemed and renewed. And I have a happily, fantastically happily ever after waiting for me with him. If you've never trusted him, turn to him today. I pray that you would. Let me pray and we'll take our offering. We'll sing together and call it a morning. Father, thanks as we look at the beginning of your story, which quite frankly is you. Um, We recognize that nothing we see or nothing that we're a part of on this earth is ultimately about us, but all of it is about you. It's about your glory. It's about who you are. I thank you that, uh, that you're unchanging, that the way we read about you in Scripture, that you're not fickle, you're not uh, grumpy one day and happy the next, and we don't need to worry about how we approach you, but you're always consistent and good and loving and merciful and compassionate toward us. I thank you, too, that even though we're the ones who messed it up, we're the ones who sinned, that you stepped into history to fix it, 
Because we, we look at the beginning of the story and we look at how everything was good and perfect and then we look around our lives and we go, that's eh, not so good. It's pretty messed up, quite frankly. And you say, yeah, I know. And it's your fault, but let me fix it. And that's what you do through Jesus. I pray for each one here. Help us as we uh, unpack your story, uh, unpack the story of scripture. That uh, Two things, you'd remind us of who you are, remind us of our place in the story. And, and second, that uh, if we've never trusted you and come to faith in Jesus, that Holy Spirit, you'd work uh, on the hearts of those who have it in such a way that we would, that we'd trust you. And we'd find purpose and meaning in life and a great restoration in the end. Father, thanks that you love us. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.